Have you ever wondered why some dinosaurs were so unbelievably big? Could this have been driven by the chemical properties of the plants that were abundant at the time? Well, David Wilkinson from Liverpool Johns Moores University and Graham Ruxton from the University of St Andrews were intrigued by this very question. Today I'm speaking with David about their paper just published in Functional Ecology, which is titled High Carbon to Nitrogen Ratio of Vegetation May Have Driven Gigantism in Sauropod Dinosaurs and Perhaps Omnivory Endor Endothermy in Their Juveniles. Hi Dave. Hi. Um, so your work on sauropod dinosaurs, um, so they were the largest ever terrestrial animals. How big were they? Well, enormous by um, modern standards, uh, which is really what interests us because neither Graham Ruxton nor myself are dinosaur experts. We're both primarily ecologists. Um, what interests us about sauropods is that they are so much bigger than anything uh, on Earth now, uh, terrestrially, and also this sort of odd shape with a long neck and a long tail and things. And uh, it sort of intrigues us to wonder to what extent can we use sort of what our modern understanding of modern ecology to actually make some suggestions and guesses about how these things might have worked. So the actual weight of um, one of the really big sauropods is, is something of a, a, an open question because clearly from a, a pile of fossil bones, it's not straightforward to estimate weight. But everyone, I think, pretty much would be happy with the suggestion that the bigger ones are over 50 metric tons. Most people, I think, who work on these things will be happy with the suggestion that the biggest ones are somewhere over uh, 80 metric tons. And quite where the top limit is, is, is anyone's guess. Right, so quite quite big indeed. Um, so Much bigger than a large African elephant. Which yeah, is the yeah. biggest thing we've got at the moment. So what are some of the ideas around for why they grew so big? Well, difficult to know, but most people who sort of speculated on this have speculated on food of one sort or another. Uh, and in particular, what we focus on is um, a variant of an idea. It's an idea that the idea that these things being very large might be an advantage for feeding on relatively poor quality vegetation is one that's been around for quite a long time. But about 10 years ago, three plant ecologists in South Africa, uh, Jeremy Midgley, Guy Midgley and uh, William Bond, um, two of whom are based at the uh, Botany Department in uh, University of Cape Town, which is an extraordinarily interesting and good plant ecology department, uh, they sort of refined this a bit and started thinking about particularly the ratio of carbon to nitrogen uh, in the plant food at the time and suggested that accessing nitrogen may have been particularly difficult for herbivore at the time and that there may have been advantages in them being so big to actually get the nitrogen that they need. Right, so how would the, the large size help them get the nitrogen they need? Again, we have to make guesses about how the physiology of these things work based on what we know about modern animals. But again, most people who've thought about these sorts of things are fairly happy that by analogy with modern animals, then to these big herbivores are utilizing an awful lot of microorganisms in their guts to help break down the plant material. Uh, and effectively, by being very, very big, they're allowing themselves to be a, you know, have a large vat of microbes, uh, which can, over a period of time, work on the plant material and help break it down. So the, uh, you know, in, in a nutshell, that's the, the basic idea of being very, very large. 
and you can go back to various bits of sort of uh, physiological theory and suggest that there are genuine reasons why being very, very large would be uh, one, one, one approach, one of several approaches that an animal could evolve to dealing with this, particularly if they uh, have a metabolism running much more slowly than a modern mammal does. Of course, of course. So what's the evidence around to suggest the plants during the Mesozoic period, when these sauropods were around, have high carbon to nitrogen ratios? Okay, well, the difficulty to start with is it's a bit of an educated guess what these things <laughs> at. At yeah. various points in the past, people have published papers where they have thought they've got fossilized stomach contents or they've thought they've got fossilized uh, droppings from these large herbivorous dinosaurs. Uh, but it's not clear whether any of these are genuinely you know, correctly interpreted or not. So it's a bit of a guess. But we do know the sorts of types of plants that were common at the time. And the crucial thing is that for the time in which these things were evolving, and indeed for most of their history, we don't have flowering plants, and we certainly don't have flowering plants in any quantity until right at the end of the time of the dinosaurs. So the sort of things we've got are things like conifers, they're things like cycads and ferns and horsetails and things like the ginkgo tree from, um, from China. Um, and we can at least look at the biochemistry of modern examples of those and look at the ratio of carbon to nitrogen in them and it is much worse from the point of view of an animal, a uh, herbivorous animal, than, it, than you find with uh, flowering plants. So in fact even flowering plants are short on nitrogen by the standards of what a typical animal needs mm -hmm. but these plants are worse than flowering plants and there are also relationships between atmospheric chemistry, particularly the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and the carbon-nitrogen ratio of plants that, again, we have from modern experiments, which suggests that as you up the amount of CO2, then, again, it get, you're going to get an even worse carbon-nitrogen ratio. And we have some evidence for high CO2 at the time. At the time, wow. there is a, a, a strong greenhouse effect, which has uh, almost certainly a lot of CO2 in it and uh, also plausibly um, quite a lot of methane in it as well. Right, okay. So you and Graham also suggest that the high carbon to nitrogen ratio could result in, in endothermy in small herbivores. Why, why would that be the case? Okay, well, there's a skip, skip first. So, I mean, this, this basic idea is effectively not our idea. The carbon nitrogen ratio idea was developed, um, say, 10 years ago by other plant ecologists. But since then, various um, people uh, who have been studying sauropod dinosaurs quite a few of them have convinced themselves this idea doesn't work mm. uh, because they've made measurements on some of these plants and decided the food quality was perfectly okay and there shouldn't be a problem. And technically what we think they've done is they've confused two issues. They've confused the amount of energy in the plant with the carbon to nitrogen ratio and this original idea of uh, Midgley, Midgley and Bond is very specifically about carbon nitrogen ratios. So we think it's still an open idea, an idea that um, whether it's right or not, we're not sure, but certainly requires taking um, seriously. Um, and so the first point, and the, the point in our new paper that we have the greatest confidence is right, is yeah. we think that this is still an open question. Mm -hmm. Having convinced ourselves of that, then we go on to try and take the idea a bit further and develop it in, in various different ways. So to go back to your last question, if an animal has a problem eating plants because for a given amount of plant material there is a shortage of nitrogen. What yeah. that means is it has to eat 
an excessive amount of plant material to get the nitrogen it needs. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's having to eat more plant material than it would need purely from its energy requirements to access the nitrogen that it needs for making protein and things. Therefore, it's taking more energy than it needs. That spare energy has got to be dumped somewhere. And the way in which a typical mammal, say, would do it is by burning it off as heat. And oh, that option is open potentially to the small, young um, uh, sauropod dinosaurs because they're quite small, they could burn it off as heat. What's interesting is when you think about that for the really large um, sauropods, the adults of some of the biggest species, which are, as we've previously said, enormous, they would find it very, very difficult to lose heat because there's a well-known relationship that people probably come across in sort of uh, high school maths and things about between volume uh, and area. And as you make um, an animal or any shape bigger, then its volume increases more rapidly than its surface area. And what that means is its ability to lose heat declines and declines and declines. So if a really large herbivorous dinosaur is trying to get rid of this surplus um, stuff by burning, burning it off as heat, then it's going to have real problems with overheating. So we don't think the big things could do that, but the little ones could. So there would be an option. And again, this is speculative. It's, it's, these are sort of ideas that follow from the argument, but are not necessarily what actually happened. But it's quite plausible that the small ones were effectively quite mammal-like in their metabolism, warm-blooded, um, and um, give off a lot of heat, but the big ones can't be. Now, we don't really have any animals today that switch like that uh, in the course of their, uh, their lifespan, but these things are so odd, they're so big <laughs> yeah, and everything else, right. such a weird shape so long ago, you know, maybe that's the, uh, the line that they took. Yeah, okay. So you, you guys also um, talk about the possibility that these juvenile sauropods may have had uh, a broader omnivorous diet, and you, um, and you offer a suggestion for how to test that. What would that be? There are several ways that you might test it. Um, so clearly, the, the idea is that one way that they could sidestep this issue, we have this argument that the big animals can deal with this problem by these big, slow microbial digesters, which are their digestive system. Small ones can't do that. <clears throat> what else are they going to do? Well, one thing is to eat less plant food and to eat um, a mix which has um, animal food in. Now, that might be, you know, actual, what people normally think when you say animals, but of course it could be things like snails and things. Um, clearly, it, that might show up in the, the fossil teeth. It also might show up in the chemistry of their bones. And with more recent animals, you can look at isotopes in bones and try to work out something about their, their um, diet. It's not straightforward. The more we know about these sorts of isotope techniques, the more ifs and buts and complications we find out where you can do it. You can do it on recent fossils, and one or two people have made an attempt to start trying to do it with dinosaur uh, fossils, but whether it's ever really going to be possible to actually use the chemistry of, that sort of survives in their bones to say very much about their diet is, is probably still an open question, but there, there are a number of lines where you could potentially get at this. Yeah, very neat. So I'd like to go back to the, the point you made earlier on that you said you're not a, a dinosaur bio biologist or... Graham's not a dinosaur biologist mm -hmm. either. So what piqued your interest about this subject? What got you involved in, the, in this question in the first place then? Well, Graham has a longer, a longer track record in this than me because he has written a number of um, dinosaur-related papers um, over the years. But um, it's particularly 
as far as I'm concerned, um, this idea that really the sauropod dinosaurs that particularly attract my interest because they are so weird. And mm-hmm. I think, right, okay, right, you know, I'm supposed to understand quite a bit about ecology and about biology of modern organisms. To what extent can I actually use though, that understanding to say anything sensible about how these things might have worked? They're just so weird. They're a really fun thing to think about, how something that strange that we don't have now uh, might actually have operated. So that's the, that's the thing that intrigues me about these sauropod dinosaurs in particular. Oh, great. So are you guys considering pushing this work further in, in, in another direction? Well, we've over the last um, year or so, we, this is, I think, the fourth um, paper with a significant amount of sauropods in, and we don't have another one on the go at the moment. We needn't, um, you know, but it, uh, if we come up with yet another nice, neat idea about sauropods, then, then certainly. But we've worked through at least our initial, the initial collection of ideas that we had about sauropods that we developed a few years ago. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thanks, Dave, for chatting with me today. It's much appreciated. That's fine. Thank you.